The reading this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles with you, your phones, you can follow along with us. We didn't get all of the passage in the handout, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 34, the last chapter of the Pentateuch. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb, and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The Word of God. So here we are, last chapter of the Pentateuch, last message of the Pentateuch. Next week at our celebration service, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the celebrations that were in the Pentateuch, but this officially ends this series. And normally this time of year, churches are preaching um, a series of Advent sermons in preparation for Christmas. And uh, this is an Adventish type of message, not a typical one, but we'll see that actually it has a lot to do with preparing for, preparing for the coming of Jesus. We've all noticed um, stores preparing for Christmas earlier and earlier. I think Ann and I, we were, I think it was a Costco trip. It, it, it might have been late October because I remember thinking, this is October and there are Christmas things here at Costco. Um, Black Friday has become Black November. I mean, it's meaningless anymore. Um, it seems like, it seems like all, all of this is eroding what little traditional meaning is left. And when I say traditional meaning, I'm not meaning um, Jesus is the reason for the season. If you've been around for a while, you've heard 
maybe more than once, uh, a Christmas message that I give, giving, kind of giving the history of Christmas here in America. But just, just eroding uh, the Christmas season where, you know, things kind of slow down a bit at the end of the year. Um, there's a, you know, we try to beautify the world that we're in with some lights and some festivities and celebrations with family and friends. Uh, we give gifts as expressions of gratitude and love and friendship. Um, we take stock of the past year with hopefully Thanksgiving and, and look forward to the year ahead with some optimism and, you know, just kind of that good, just Christmas feeling, right? It seems like that is even, even more and more eroding. Um, and as I said, you know, typically this is the, the, his, the historical season of Advent um, is about four weeks long. It's usually a little after Thanksgiving. And historically, Advent originally, so I, I think that the tradition of Advent, of churches um, having a season on their calendar that was anticipating Christmas, started about the 5th or 6th century. So it's been quite a long time. Um, they would spend four weeks on Advent, and the first two weeks were actually focused on the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus is going to return, as prophesied in uh, a lot of the prophets, and obviously in the book of Revelation. And then the second two weeks would focus on uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God into human form in the baby of Mary. And so, however, it's kind of just turned into, hey, a season that's focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ, Christmas time. And again, we haven't been working through Advent. We typically don't do a lot of things around the typical Christian calendar. Uh, but really, this is a, a message that would be very appropriate for an Advent message. Deuteronomy chapter 34. So I read it. There is about four movements through this passage. So I'm going to walk through those. Um, and we're going to see what, what the, the author of the book of Deuteronomy had in mind in this last chapter. So Moses um, has just preached a series of sermons to the entire camp of Israel. It doesn't tell us how much time that it took, but it was their very intense sermons. There's a lot of repetition, so you know that he was a pastor. Um, and then he's done. His job's over. They are in the plains of Moab. They are looking into the promised land. It's been 40 years in the desert, a desert so relentless that God has had to provide food and water for them miraculously. And so Moses completes these sermons. It's, it's kind of a, a series of final warnings. There's even a song just earlier, a couple chapters in Deuteronomy, uh, chapters 31 and 32. It's a song, and it's really a song that, that basically is um, telling Israel that they're going to fail, and that they're going to be in exile, and that they're not going to be faithful to God. But in the end, God will restore them when they, when they call out to him. So um, it's a serious, intense book. These, and these sermons that Moses preached. So he's done, and he climbs this mountain. He climbs Mount Nebo, and God gives them this miraculous view. So when, if you're at Mount Nebo now, I've never been to Israel, but there's some reading about it, um, you can barely see Jericho on a really clear day. But God gives Moses 
a miraculous view that where he can even see the shore of the Mediterranean. Okay, so it's this expansive, miraculous view. It mentions several times that he can see the city of Jericho, which is the city of Palms. Now, if you've been wandering around in a dry desert, relying on God for water and for food miraculously, and you climb this mountain, and you're looking into this promised land, and you see this city, you see the city, and it's full of palm trees. It seems like there's this emphasis in this chapter on Jericho, the city of palms. And throughout the Old Testament, it is referred to as that. And so he has this view of this land. Um, and you probably have had, you know, I'm sure that there are some landscapes, some views I've got a few views in my mind. Ann and I were looking at some pictures that we uh, had, uh, that we took when we took our 25th anniversary to Italy. Just some views. I've got some pictures of some time in Portugal. There's just, for me, like vineyards, hills, rivers, little villages and villas. My friends tell me I have an over-realized eschatology, which means that this could be heaven right here on earth. I'd be fine right now. So multiply any of those grand visions you've had when you've looked upon a space and said, this is gorgeous, this is beautiful, this, this could be home. Multiply that vision and view that you've had by a thousand times or a million times, and that's what Moses saw, a miraculous view that God gave him of the promised land, this land that has been promised to his people for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, and then he says... This is the land that I've promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to their offspring, singular offspring. But you can't go. You can't go. So I want you to think about what do you think Moses felt? You can't go, Moses. You can't go. Would he feel satisfied? hey, I've completed my task. I've brought the nation this far. Some relief. I don't have to walk around in this desert anymore hauling millions of people around after me that sometimes have wanted to stone me. So he could feel some relief or he could feel disappointment. Disappointment for coming all of this way. All of those the, the trials, the stress while they were in, <clears throat> excuse me, while they were in Egypt, face to face with Pharaoh, staring him down, watching all of what God was doing, coming all this way, 40 years, and he can't go. Disappointment. Maybe, maybe he was even feeling shame. Because the, the reason why he can't go over, which the text is going to refer to here in a moment, the reason why he can't go over is because he, he dishonored God in front of the nation by disobeying God. It was one of those instances where he was instructed to speak to a rock, and the rock would then produce water for the nation to drink because they were grumbling about being thirsty. Well, instead of speaking to the rock, which would obviously look really strange, um, he struck the rock with his staff, which is the thing that God told them to do the first time they needed water. He, God said, strike the rock, but now he said, speak to it. 
Moses didn't speak to it. Moses struck the rock. And because he dishonored God and disobeyed him in the presence of all the nation, God said, you will not be able to go into the nation. So it, it would even be like, one, you know, like we all have. We remember back to a time where we sinned and there were consequences. And once again, those consequences come and we're dealing with it. So shame is a very possible feeling. So who, it's hard to tell. Verse, verses 5 through 8, Moses' death. So here's the description of that. So obviously um, Moses is not the one writing at this time because it's a recording of Moses' death. Having died, he would not be able to write it. So we'll get back to that a little bit later. But, so there's a description of Moses' death. He, he dies according to God's word. So this is, this is in reference to when God told him you will not go over. You will die without going into the land. So the text is calling us back to that moment to recall why Moses isn't going over. These were words of punishment. These were words of punishment, and the author wants us as reader to recall those words of punishment. God then secretly buried Moses in, the, in Moab to protect the people from superstition. So even Moses, in some way, didn't fulfill his task. God knows, as we can see throughout history, history of the church, um, if they knew where Moses was buried, it's very likely that they would set up some sort of a shrine or memorial or even dig up his bones. You know, for a, a long season in the history of the, of the church, there would be shrines that were built they would have bones of the saints, and people would make pilgrimages, and they would think that these bones had special powers. And so God prevents Moses from being elevated, even though when we get to the New Testament, we see that many of the Jewish leaders um, cling on to Moses, which is not the intent of the text. It's not the intent of the text. We shouldn't be, and this, God does this because, and the text records it, because God does not want his people to cling on to the great leader, Moses. But again, you ha I think we have to continue to ask, even though, well, it continues, it goes on to describe Moses' conditions. It says that he lived 120 years, which was the cap that God put on human life duration after the flood, if you can recall that. So Moses lives to the cap, but he is, he says his eye has not dimmed. He can see as clear as he did when he was a young man. And it's, it says his strength and his vigor was unabated, which means that his physical strength as a man is the same as it was when, it, when he was younger. He has not decreased in his physical ability. Now you read that and you're thinking, Man, that is great. Moses was a great man. And he, and he had physical, a strong physical condition up until the day that he died. And so you can read about this and, and, and still think highly of Moses, but I don't, I don't think that that's what the text is going for. If we, if we were to ask ourselves, okay, what would Moses, okay, he is full of strength, we know his personality and character. He is a take-charge leader. He spoke face-to-face -face with, with, with God when all of the rest of the nation was afraid to do so. He was face-to-face -face with Pharaoh. Um, he, 
he was a strong leader. I know when, when God called him, he was trying to get out of it, and, made, and he made himself sound like he was kind of weak and unable to do that. But what we've seen over the text is that he was a very strong, aggressive, take-action leader that got things done. It's hard to imagine somebody like that at a point in life where they're feeling like they could live a lot longer seeing this tremendous vision that God has just given and for there to not be some level of disappointment and shame. That's what, you, again, if you just kind of read it the first time, you, 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 you don't pick that up. But if you sit there and think about it, there's the words of, the words of God, which are words of punishment. Moses in, is in full strength. His personality was not one to just kind of give up or stop. It seems like some disappointment and shame was probably what Moses was feeling. Probably what Moses was feeling. I know that I would at least want to just, hey, Lord, just a day or two. Let me take a day or two and go into the land. But God prevented him from doing that. You know, it's, it's kind of like the buildup that we have for Christmas. We have... You know, we spend a lot, of, a lot of money, maybe sometimes too much. We make plans. We look forward to trips. Maybe we're going to take a vacation and forget the family this time. But, you know, after Christmas, it generally is always some degree of a letdown because we have too many hopes built into Christmas time. I mean, there was, you know, there's been, uh, John Grisham wrote a book, Stopping Christmas or quitting Christmas or something like what skipping Christmas yeah then they made some movies about it so sometimes it feels like Christmas isn't worth it sometimes it feels like that and a lot of times again we we get through it and we feel a little disappointment and maybe even a little shame depending on on a whole number of things the text continues verse 9 God's purposes are still going forward with Joshua so it says, Joshua was raised up, Moses laid his hands on him, and he had the spirit of Moses, and he went forward to lead the nation. It's not the last word. Moses' death is not the last word. He was a great leader, not perfect, good, great leader. Joshua's going to continue the, the, the project. However, it's not done with Joshua either. So there's these last three verses that are super important. Super important to the entire Pentateuch. And super important for how we read from here. So it says, a prophet like Moses has not arisen since. Okay, so you stop and think. A prophet like Moses hasn't arisen since. Now, there's only one other prophet mentioned in the Pentateuch, and it's Abraham. And he became before he came before Moses. So what prophets is this writer talking about? So this is a little, little bit of academic top shelf stuff that I think is really exciting and beautiful. So when we think of reading the Bible, we sit down, we pick a book out, and we read it. We've been reading the Pentateuch. Pentateuch was written by Moses. It's called the Law of Moses. Jesus affirmed that. 
we sit down to read the Psalms, mostly written by David, but there are a lot of other authors, authors as well. Um, you know, so we think of an individual book, but the Bible is a collection of 66 books. All, right, a lot, all of us have read books, I'm sure, that aren't just books by a single author, but are edited. Okay, they're compilations, they're anthologies, where somebody gets an idea for a theme and says, okay, we need to write about this. Okay, so whether it's theology or medicine or engineering or the arts, whatever it might be, I, there are books like this for every discipline. Somebody gets an idea, we need a book on such and such subject, and that editor contacts you know, 10 or 12 or 15 scholars to write on this. Here's what I want you to write about. This is your specialty. Write about this, 20 to 25 pages. Submit it. We're going to put this edited book together into an anthology. And so that's what the Bible is. So you had authors, but you also had these prophets that after all of the books had been written, so we're just talking about the Hebrew Bible at this point. So the Hebrew Bible was the law, the books of Moses, the prophets, and then the writings. And the writings are like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Daniel is actually a writing as well. Um, so the, the prophets are the historical books as well as what we would consider prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. And so you had, you had these three big collections of books, the law, prophets, and writings. At some point, it actually became the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. That point was somewhere around 100 or 200 years before Jesus Christ. So the, the last texts of the prophets and the writings are five or 600 years, the events. The events and people writing down what was happening was about five or 600 years before Jesus. And so there was this period of a few hundred years where there were prophets. And during this time, they're reading the law of prophets and writings, and they are assembling the Hebrew Bible. And so when they assembled the Hebrew Bible, they had, they had to make sure that they were um, respecting the individual contributions of each author, but they also had to make sure that the main storyline was not getting lost. And the, you know the Bible. You pick up the Bible, you're like, where do I begin? What's this all about? It can be very confusing. Well, we've tried to do the best job as, we've, as we can in explaining from the Pentateuch that, yes, it's the history of Israel. Yes, there are all these stories that we're familiar with. But from the very beginning, from that promise to man and woman, you will have a child who will destroy that snake. And he will bring life back to all of creation. That promise from Genesis chapter 3 then started the unfolding of events, which is why Genesis is all about these genealogies. Such and such was the child of such and such, and that's repeated. That forms the structure of Genesis. So by the time you get done with Genesis, you should, as a reader, be thinking, well, here's the history of Israel, but it, we're looking at the history of Israel because the history of Israel is tracing this promised child. Earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is expressing his, some of his frustration and delivering these sermons to the nation, he says, you know what? You haven't done a great job of listening to me in these 40 years that I've led you. 
Someday a prophet like me will arise and you will listen to him. You will listen to him. So that prophet that Moses is speaking to about is that promised child. To Judah, a promise was given. You will have a, a son, you will have a descendant that will sit on the throne of the nations of the world. Okay, That promised son to Judah is a promised king. It's the same person. And so we have in the book of the law, the Pentateuch, the promise of a child who will bring life to all creation, the promise of a king who will rule the nations, and the promise of a prophet that everyone will listen to. And that's where Deuteronomy ends. A prophet has not yet arisen. The person that wrote that was not Moses, obviously. He wouldn't be able to write it. It was one of these prophet editors a few hundred years before Christ, after all the prophets had come. All the prophets had come, and the, Israel did not listen to its prophets. They killed them. So when Jesus comes on the scene, so the series that we're going to do in the, in the winter, spring, well, winter, be eight weeks or so, is who is Jesus on our Wednesday nights when we start that up. So we get to the Gospels, and they keep asking, they keep asking John the, ba- John the Baptist, and they occasionally ask Christ, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? And then when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Elijah, and there's Moses, and there's Jesus. And what that image was, was this prophet has come. Jesus is this prophet. Jesus is this prophet. And so... The writer, the the editors of the Hebrew Bible put that in there so that when you're reading your Bible, okay, as as a Jew in an exiled nation, okay, they were exiled in 586. Um... No, they were exiled before that. 586, they were allowed to start coming back. But they had been under the rule of foreign nations for hundreds of years. So here they are. They're reading these stories. And it says you're going to go into exile. These people are in exile. But they've also read these promises. If you call upon the Lord and return to him, he will bring you back to the land. And then at the end of the book of Daniel, there's actually a timeline. When the, when the king declares that Israel can go back to Jerusalem, that starts this approximately 490-year timeline till the Messiah comes. And so if you're reading your Bible, and you read, oh, a prophet has not yet come, and then you get to Daniel and say, wait a minute, I can start, I can start understanding when this prophet, when this Messiah is going to come, which is why when you get into Luke chapter 1 and 2, we meet Simeon and Anna, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Simeon and Anna, they are waiting for Messiah because they've been reading their Bible. The Hebrew Bible is about Jesus. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he fulfills all these things that the Hebrew Bible talked about. And so one of, the, one of the statements in one of the prophets, Isaiah, says this, says this about this coming 
Messiah, this coming prophet. Behold, this is God speaking, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And whoever believes in him will not be in haste. This is another prophecy about this child, this king, this prophet. And it images God building a kingdom. And so when you look um, throughout the Gospels, what you see a lot of language around is the gospel of the kingdom. God is building a kingdom. God is building a people. And he uses this imagery of this cornerstone. So a cornerstone, if you're not familiar with ancient building procedures, um, they would you know, do a site plan and lay out a building, and then they would lay a cornerstone. And the cornerstone determined the elevation of the building, and it also determined the direction of the walls. And so once your cornerstone was laid, that would set the, the course for the entire structure. And so God says, I am building a kingdom, and I am setting a cornerstone in, a, in its place. And this idea at the end of that statement by Isaiah, anyone who trusts in him will not be in haste, it's, it's the idea of we can prematurely put our trust in something. So if you're thinking of a building, and you see this cornerstone, and you decide, you know what, this is going to be a great building. I'm going to buy it when it's done. I'm going to commit to buying it now. But sometimes things don't turn out the way it seems at the beginning. That's what it means in haste. And actually, a lot of New Testament writers um, quote this passage, and they change that, that last phrase, anyone who believes in this cornerstone will not be put to shame. Some say will not be disappointed. You can trust the cornerstone. The rest of the building is going to go great because the cornerstone has been set. You don't have to wait until God completely builds his kingdom. You don't have to wait until God completely builds his temple. And so what, what, what the gospel of the kingdom is, is a, is a, is a declaration that this, this child, this king, this prophet has come. And the cornerstone now has been laid in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wait until we see the full kingdom of God to come. And as Jesus said, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in me. The cornerstone has been set. Paul, in reference to this passage, says this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Really, we are standing in the kingdom by having believed in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So Jesus Christ is this cornerstone. The building is still being built. The kingdom of God is still being built. And Christmas time, if we affirm the, the aspects of it that Christendom has put on it, because it's not a biblical holiday, but we are to remember and recall these stories of Jesus. We are to remember and recall these stories from the Hebrew Bible, these prophecies about this coming child and king and, and prophet. These things are to be on our minds, not just around Christmas time, but really on a daily basis. And through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone that has been laid, the king and prophet that we are still looking for. So the original historical understanding of Advent is actually more appropriate because the king came as a baby, which is absolutely great. But the king did not stay. The cornerstone was laid. The building wasn't completed. The temple wasn't completed. That's what is happening now. And those who put their trust in him are parts of that temple. Ephesians chapter 2, we are all parts of the temple that God through the Holy Spirit is assembling to be a unified people. And that ultimately will be the kingdom of God when that work is done and all creation has been redeemed. When Jesus Christ comes to earth, we don't go to heaven, Jesus Christ comes to earth, makes a new heaven and a new earth, a new kingdom. We all long for that kingdom. It's the perfect Christmas that we've never had. All right? It's the vision of a landscape and vision of a home that we've never lived in nor ever will prior to that kingdom. It is the sure hope. It is a place where there isn't the anxiety and worry of what the holidays are going to bring and the, and the challenges that our time with our families are going to bring or the disappointments that our kids may have when they're given a present that they don't like. I remember I was 10, maybe 8, I remember opening up a present that my grandmother had given me. And I was dis it was a pillowcase <laughs> with like a Mickey Mouse iron-on thing, you know? And I expressed disappointment. <laughs> and my, my dad gave me a little slap because he saw my expression of disappointment. So... We can have all kinds of disappointments and anxieties around the holidays. But with Jesus Christ, we can experience peace. We can anticipate a future glory better than any vision of glory, and, which is beauty and comfort and magnificence. It's a better vision. The text says in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has given us a view to a redemption. And that, that view is the Holy Spirit. That view is the Holy Spirit because we have moments. We have moments where we sense in a powerful way what he says here. God's love. It's been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, he has control and power to change our feelings, to change our thoughts, to change our minds, to change what we're experiencing. And we all have moments. And the more we renew our mind and obey God's commands and abide in him, the moments are, are more intense, They're, they are more frequent, they are longer lasting. But we have those moments 
where we sense the presence of God. Where we sense the presence of God and we know that whatever is going on in our life now doesn't matter. And we are overwhelmed by a sense of God's love and care for us and the power that he has. And that vision, that power that the Holy Spirit gives within us, gives us the ability to go through suffering with joy. He says, we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing what it's doing. He says it produces perseverance, which means we're going to continue to, we're going to, continue to press forward. See, Moses kept pressing forward, but in the end he was disappointed and ashamed. He kept pressing forward. He kept enduring. And this endurance produces character. And then this word for character, this is really, I think this is really beautiful. The word for character, character is actually not a very good, well, maybe it's because of all the baggage we have on the term character. It means genuineness. The more we go through suffering, the more we are refined to being a genuine version of what Christ has made us to be. We, we are becoming more and more of the perfect kingdom. And if you can think about what it would mean for you to experience complete genuineness, no reason to hide, no reason to deceive. It would be, you would be the perfect version of what God wanted to make you to be. That, that is what Christ is doing. So the, the more we suffer and endure through the hope of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, by setting our hope not on the things that are on this earth, you know, we, we talk a lot about shifting hopes in this church. We set our hope not on the things of this earth, but we set our hope. We set our hope on Jesus Christ and knowing that he can produce something in our suffering that will spring up within us an experience of God's presence and God's love, transforming us to be a more genuine, pure version of what God has called us to. That, that is supposed to be the spirit of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his coming as a child. God, thank you for the hope that we have in his future coming where he will establish his kingdom and where he will make us completely genuine and pure, refined, beautiful, and glorious and that we will be with each other as a full expression of your temple. God, we pray that, that during this Christmas season and in the years ahead, you would strengthen us as a church towards love towards you. As Moses emphasized, you, Lord God, are one. You, Lord God, are one. And we love you. Strengthen us, Lord God, to, to love you, to love each other, and to love this world. Thank you, God, for the word of the Pentateuch and the promise of Christ in it. In Jesus' name, amen.